what is going on in the art market and where is it headed? The answers are in the pages of the fall 2021 Artnet Intelligence Report, edited by me, Artnet News Executive Editor Julia Halperin. In this season's pithy, lively, insight-filled report, we tell you what to expect as the market enters its roaring 2020s phase and offer a data-led breakdown of how the auction market is evolving worldwide. You'll find a quartet of profiles of collectors who embody the future of the discipline, including the first in-depth look at the collecting habits of Korean pop star T.O.P. We reveal which cities are the fastest growing market hubs, just how much money NFT sales actually made for auction houses, and much, much more. This report is available exclusively to Artnet News Pro members. To find it, go to news.artnet.com slash market slash the intelligence report. If you aren't already a member, you can subscribe at news.artnet.com slash subscribe. We spent a lot of time making sure this report was worth your time, and we hope you love it. The gallery is five years old, I think, this year, and they're participating in Basel first time, and they sold out their booth on the first day. And I think, you know, that's a reflection that it's not just, you know, the paces and the, these mega galleries making these, like, early sales. You know, this is what's happening kind of at all levels. Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. An art industry ritual returned after an unprecedented hiatus. On Monday evening last week, art advisors, dealers, and collectors ceremoniously filed into the formidable fairgrounds of Switzerland's Art Basel. The premier art fair's 50th edition was actually set to take place across a balmy week in June 2020 but it slid back nearly a year and a half, its plans marred by a raging public health crisis, limitations on travel, and restrictions on events and gatherings. After so much uncertainty about the state of the art market, more than 270 dealers calculated the risks and ultimately decided to take a leap of faith, bringing the best of their rosters to the Rhine River. It seems like the gambit really paid off. By late afternoon on preview day, galleries seemed to really exhale for the first time in months, or even a year. But was it business as usual? Yes and no. The event did run with incredible smoothness, with no issues, except for a few spats on Twitter over whether the absence of U.S. collectors was a boon for European deal-making or not. Restaurants were booked out across town for lavish dinners. But being on the guest list wasn't the only prerequisite. Proof of vaccination was required. And sales were strong, but not quite like the old days. And NFTs made their flashy debut. On the whole, everyone seemed deeply relieved to be back in their booths or perusing the aisles, myself included. I was joined in Basel by two fellow journalists to take the temperature of the scene. I am joined today in Basel, Switzerland, with Naomi Ray, European market editor and senior market reporter Eileen Kinsella, who has joined us from New York in Europe. Hi, guys. Thanks for being on the pod. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks, Kate. We're gathered together in a situation like no other, the first major art fair in over a year and a half. I'm going to start with you, Aileen, because you came quite a ways. How was getting here? How was getting to Basel? And how was getting yourself into the fair? There were some challenges, starting with filling out forms in New York that were very, very detailed down to what is your postal code in Switzerland? And it literally would not let you complete the form unless you enter this information, which how would I ever know the postal code of where I'm staying? So there was just a lot of like red tape, a lot of things that I thought had already been certified because I filled out forms for Basel with the Swiss government, but I got to the airport and turned out that was not the case, that there was different certifications that were required. 
So that was one thing. Otherwise, the entry into the country was pretty seamless. It's obviously a little bit of a long journey, but there wasn't really a lot of questions on this end once I arrived here. I feel like everything was the lead up to getting on the plane and, and leaving the country. All that was done in, in New York, in the U.S. But yeah, since being here, I mean, yeah, we can talk about the COVID tent, but getting here was... Uh, definitely felt like a little bit of a feat this time. Yeah, we must talk about the little COVID tent that we all had to pass. <laughs> or the big COVID tent, <laughs> the giant COVID tent. For this season's hottest new accessory, which is this like black bracelet, festival bracelet, which says that you don't have COVID. There's these little silk bracelets that everybody had to get clamped on their wrists for the entire week. But I thought that they were really pushing people through there quite quickly. And it was like totally seamless and less of a hiccup than I sort of imagined it would be. I've gotten kind of used to it. Yeah. I'll miss it when it's gone, maybe. But you came here off the back of Armory Week. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, how did you find that fair as compared to what you experienced on the fair floor this week? Well, Armory, first of all, I felt like the minute I walked in, there was just this sense of like jubilation of a lot of people to be back at the art fair. They had their own set of unique circumstances, which is that they were in a new home for the first time, which is the Javits Center. A lot of people focused on the fact that it was very spacious and allowed for social distancing. People were very observant of the mask requirement. It just felt like it was very thoughtfully planned and everybody was happy to be there. I personally felt like it was going to be a giant proving ground for just comfort with fairs in general. But then getting to Basel and being here in Switzerland, you realize that, you know, even if there is a comfort level and there is a certain comfort level, it didn't change the fact that a lot of Americans just didn't travel over here. So I think underlining that sense that fairs are like extraordinarily regional. I think maybe the bottom line is just overall confidence, but not necessarily meaning that people are jetting around from one country to another. I think that Basel's done an amazing job. I think everything's flowed really well, you know, in terms of just uh, getting access to all the, you know, different certificates, etc. So they've made it pretty easy. Very clear that, that Basel's done a really, you know, serious job about preparing everybody and obviously you know it's a very well organized fair with um, collectors ready to to see to talk because you see a lot of collectors just stopping in a less rush and ready to buy i think i think it's got you had some observations naomi about like collectors like what kinds of people made it here and who didn't um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of European collectors who made it. And I think that a lot of people were waiting until the last moment, you know, to really decide whether they were coming. I think people thought, you know, older collectors wouldn't make the trek. But, you know, there were a good number of, of European collectors on the fairground. And to be honest, you know, not a lot of American collectors, but a few big ones. And that's sometimes all that needs to happen, you know, to, to sort of get momentum going in sales early. Mm -hmm. In the absence of American and Asian collectors, there seemed to be a lot of art advisors, though, that had come from the States. Yeah. I mean, we both heard that from dealers and saw a lot of Asian art advisors that were going around closely examining things, taking a lot of notes. I didn't observe this, but I think you did, Kate, that a dealer I was speaking with today said there was a lot of Zoom activity with the art advisors from Asia setting up these like very detailed Zoom meetings in the booth, showing works, conversation with the dealer. So engaging that way if they couldn't be here in real life. Yeah, I saw um, a FaceTime going on with like a horde of collectors and it was kind yeah. of <laughs> counterintuitive because in order to see the iPad, like everybody was like so jammed together. And I was like, well, <laughs> could have probably done this differently. But I mean, there are very few collectors from the US. I think we've got two collectors from the US that are here. Mm -hmm. But um, it is, it's very much a, a European focused um, I think collector base. Yeah. There are no, virtually no Americans. Uh, I mean, we've seen one or two American clients, 
but a lot of American consultants, actually, because it's their job. So those are pretty much the only Americans. We've seen no Asians at all, although they had set up this very sophisticated uh, network of people going around the fair that were booking Zoom, uh, you know, trips around the fair for an hour and a half with their Asian clients. So we, we were able to connect with a number of our Asian clients through that who asked to see us, um, but physically not. I was on my way here because I'm based in Berlin. I was on the train on the Deutsche Bahn and talking to different people that I know from Germany. And you could almost like slice the air. Like it was tense. People were super nervous and then nobody knew what this fair was going to be like. And then, as you said, by the end of the day, it was quite like jubilant. It seemed like it went a lot better than people had expected. I think a lot of that also has to do with the anxiety that everybody had beforehand it meant that there was a lot of like pre-grinding going in. Like people were trying to secure pre-sales and like really that paid off in these sort of early hours of the fair, all of these sales reports started coming in. And I think that really reflected the work that had gone in beforehand. They've been sending a lot of previews as well. Yeah, this is what there I'm are a lot of work sold yeah. before. Extremely enthusiastic, a lot of sale, mm -hmm. extremely happy pre-sale on digital, but also physical when people discover it. Mm -hmm. We create a dialogue and, uh, you know, within the DNA of the gallery. Basel annually opens with Unlimited, which is on a sector that is full of these larger than life, so to speak, like works. And I think after seeing so many things online, no matter the quality of the online viewing room, there's nothing quite like stepping in front of like a huge painting. Exactly. Yeah, I would agree. So did you have a sense of some sales highlights from Unlimited or from the main fair? We did notice when we walked in that things seemed a little bit on the quiet side. So maybe it is a mixture of pre-sales and, I mean, not totally quiet, like it was a busy VIP day. But by the end of the first day, we were already starting to hear of some really significant sales. A couple that I can just share with you here. We had a couple of strong sales early on where Gladstone Gallery's Keith Haring painting had an asking price of $5.2 million. Hauser and Wirth sold a uh, major Philip Gustin for six and a half million. And Tadeus Ropak placed a Robert Rauschenberg that would, had been in the limited sector, obviously a large work for 4.5 million. Another gallery that we spoke to that had really robust sales on day one in the first three hours, Pace Gallery said that it sold some 20 works and that there was a surprising number that actually went to American collectors. I don't remember if they specified they were physically there, although, yeah, they did say they saw some Americans. So they had mentioned a Jeff Koons gazing ball from 2021 for about 2 million, a sculpture by Barbara Hepworth for 1.2 million drawings by Robert Longo. And Paul Kasman also did well with early charcoals by Lee Krasner. And we heard from Lehman Maupin that they had a nearly sold out booth on the first day. Right. In the absence of collectors physically being here, it does though seem that what galleries reported that there were sales being made to American and Asian collections. Um, Maria Lasnig's painting at Hauser and Wurst sold for 650,000 US dollars to a collection in Asia. And there was an Ed Clark painting that went for 850000 to an American foundation. So yeah, even if they were not able to be here, it seemed like there was a lot of hunger. Yeah. Some interesting feedback that we heard. One dealer who told me that, you know, Americans weren't here, but they were very active online was that it created another layer of work because of the time difference, because they were so active, but obviously in their own time zone. And another American art advisor that we spoke to who really wanted to be here and who couldn't told us that she was pretty active online and had been productive from PDFs. Her name is Wendy Cromwell. And she said she actually lost out on a few things because as she described it, access is as tight as ever for certain artists. 
So even though we were hearing and seeing robust sales, there's also a lot going on virtually based on the reports that we've been getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was also a couple of uh, ghost booths this year. Like there was, I think, five galleries that weren't able to attend. I believe that they were all from Asia. And one of them, Shang Art, did super well and closed several sales. So, you know, I think that there were some interim measures that worked quite well. People are kind of like accustomed to that now. How did you determine that? I heard that Shang Art had done quite well, and I was wondering like how they were even here. And then I realized that they had some surrogates here. Oh, okay. And the same was for Tokyo Gallery, Vitamin Creative Space, and Tennis Space, about half a dozen of them. So that was something new. It's interesting because you don't know that it's a ghost booth unless you go talk to them. Right. It kind of doesn't matter. Like I didn't know, you know, because you engaged with them. Yeah. And I guess really in the end, it's just that the, probably the directors or the owners can't come and, you know, Mm -hmm. foster those connections, but we're all so used to FaceTime and Zoom. And they're on hand if they need to, right. For the fair hours. I think that was a requirement for Hong Kong. Right. That they had to like be up (laughs) in the middle of the night. I think it is, you know, it is really significant, you know, to have the owner or director on the floor. I mean, I was talking to Lisa Essers, owner of Goodman Gallery. She came all the way from South Africa They'd been in a serious lockdown and she's not been able to travel at all. Lisa's come from Joburg, where mm. she's been on a serious lockdown for practically 18 months. Yeah. So to be here is almost yeah. a miracle. Did you have to kind of quarantine for, for 14 days or something? No, not to come into Switzerland. Um, as long as one is vaccinated, you could come in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like London, where we're on the red zone and we can't... Uh, South Africa's not allowed into the UK without... Uh, yeah, so thank God it was relatively easy. Easy, yeah. But I was just in town to be vaccinated about four weeks ago so I could actually come because our vaccination rollout started very late in the, in South Africa. Yeah, and in terms of having a kind of market moment like this, I mean, South Africa, you've been kind of isolated from the rest of the you know European market. I mean, what's this kind of mean for you to be able to, to come and, and make it happen? It's so significant because we really have been very isolated for the last 18 months. I mean, I've literally been in Johannesburg and haven't left. It's quite daunting. Um, I'm personally finding it a little bit daunting um, just because we really have not, I really haven't socialized or been out of my house for 18 months. I know that in Europe people have been out in restaurants and, but it's very, very, you know, it's very, uh, it's very weird for me personally. Being allowed into Switzerland was a big deal, I think. She can't go to freeze, for example. London is not allowing people from South Africa. Yeah, it's one thing to go out to dinner. It's another to go to an art fair with hundreds of exhibitors and thousands of guests. That's a real switch. But surely Goodman will participate in freeze. Yes, with of local. course. I mean, Goodman's a big gallery. They have a branch in London. They had a pop-up in the East Hamptons, I think, in the summertime. And so, you know, they've not been that isolated from the market. But I do think that more generally, a lot of galleries in the global South have been kind of struggling from not being able to travel and attend fairs in person. Right. So while it has been a struggle for sure for some galleries that are, you know, farther afield, I think that some UK galleries that were like at the fair for the first time in statements had done quite well. Some young galleries... And you had spoken to. Yeah, Emmeline, I think they were participating. The gallery is five years old, I think, this year. And um, they were participating in Basel first time. And they sold out their booth on the first day. And I think, you know, that's a reflection that it's not just, you know, the paces and these mega galleries making these like early sales. You know, this was happening kind of at all levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another couple galleries I spoke to at Statements, like even if they hadn't even made any sales yet by like the afternoon of Tuesday, they were just so happy to like have a presence there and have the chance to like meet some 
new contacts. Yeah. I spoke with San Francisco dealer, Jessica Silverman, and it was interesting because I had talked with her at the armory and she was completely going to Basel. She said it was a done deal for her. Two factors that were a part of that was that one, one of her artists, Matthew Angelo Harrison, has an ongoing show at the Kunsthall Basel. And she was showing this Native American ceramicist, Rose B. Simpson, a pretty well-received booth, maybe required a little bit more education for an entirely European audience. But Jessica was really committed to showing her. And she was so happy when she got into statements that she was sort of like, this is a no-brainer. We, you know, we have to go. And she said by the end of the preview, she had sold seven out of 10 of the works on display and the prices range from 20 to 50,000. So that's an example of like, she was committed to going. She knew that it was a bold move to show this kind of work, but was really happy in the end that she came. It's nice that there were some moments with really bold works because I had to say that I did notice in Unlimited there was a lot of paintings and in the main section as well, a lot of group presentations, like with the entire roster benchmarking every kind of artist. But Jeffrey Deitch, that was a really a talked about thing very of much. the fair. Urs Fischer's bread house, which was, you know, just this very like messy artwork that, you know, you got to step inside of it and it was just everything that is very unique to like an in-person fair. I think it was about 3 million. Did you guys have a chance to see it? I did. Yeah. You said it came from like the oldest bakery in Zurich. He's from Zurich yeah. originally. So they sourced a couple of kinds of bread. I can't remember the (laughs) kinds because I'm unsophisticated. Um, (laughs) Somebody joked in my Instagram, they asked me, was it sourdough or something else? Because that was obviously a big part of the pandemic. (laughs) It looked like French bread and focaccia, but, um, (laughs) um, but yeah, I was at dinner with an American art advisor and they were like saying that they was like a bad buy because there'd be constant pests. I was wondering about the maintenance and the upkeep of that. I mean, it's got to deteriorate, right? Deitch said that that was like part of the work, you know, that it is this work that really a collector who would buy that would really need to take care of it. And it's part of the piece that you need to like upkeep it. I guess you have to swap bread every once yeah, in a like while. Yeah, like a Felix Gonzalez Torres. He used to do that with the candy yeah. where you, their owner had a certificate where he could replace it with any type of candy that he or she wanted. Yeah, exactly. And I think he was a notable return to the fair. I think mm-hmm. he'd been away for 12 years. Deitch? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and he was waiting to get his slot back on the fair floor, he said. I love Jeffrey Deitch's booth with the Katie Nolan, Kara Walker, and Keith Herring. It's just, it's just a great presentation. We're very happy to see it. And honestly, if I had to scrap my the bottom of my pockets, I would buy one of those Katie uh, Nolans yeah. between 1.2 and 3.5 million. Yeah. And they're really, really masterpieces. So, and I cannot believe they're available. So. Uh, you have a lot of money, go for a Katie Nolan. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's a rarity to see that much of her work together, right? I mean, it's doesn't come around that often. Exactly. Yeah. Much less like in an institution and much less at at an art fair. So it was quite a, quite a power move. Yeah. Yeah. There was a little sign on the wall that said Katie Nolan was not involved in this presentation. (laughs) Of course she wasn't. (laughs) That's hilarious. I missed that. (laughs) Another thing that was new at the fair was like NFTs. Did you have a chance to see Kenny Schachter's co-production with Nagel Draxler? I went by there today and I had a look at it and it was wild. I mean, from the video of him blowing up the new Pace Gallery building on 25th Street to the walls just being plastered with imagery. And it was sort of like for NFTs and against NFTs, but you know the real deal on it. So tell us what you observed. I think it was confusing people. When I went to the booth on Tuesday, it was totally packed in there, but one VIP was trying to charge his phone in one of the works. <laughs> one of the uh, directors was like, excuse me, like that you, may, you know you may not. But they had said that they were having a lot of interesting conversations with, you know, quite a traditional demographic of collectors. And they had closed some sales. 
They had sold an Olive Allen work for 25000 Kevin Abwash's NFT had sold for about 40000 And what was interesting, and maybe not perfectly okay, like paper-wise, is that because some of the collectors couldn't handle this sort of wallet on OpenSea, oh, because NFTs are actually getting sold on OpenSea, you can't just take them off the wall, which was another point of confusion at the fair. They were, you know, doing the deal in euros or dollars, and then they were buying the work on OpenSea for them because they just didn't have time to open their wallet. So quite an exception. They discussed it with the artist and the client and made sure everything was kosher before doing so. But it was just an interesting way to see how this has become hybridized. It's definitely a new reality, right? I mean, like it used to be a big deal to have to like, you know, an artist could dictate whether their work was be priced in euros or dollars. And now we're on to an entirely new universe. It's wild. I mean, if you're considering like people in, in London were freaking out about even being asked their ID as part of new sort of market regulations. I mean, having to sort of go through any kind of crypto nonsense, I think is a big adjustment for a lot of sort of more traditional handshake dealers. Indeed. Indeed. But just the fact that they're already at Basel shows that I think we're going to see more and more of yeah. them. Koenig also has an NFT sale on Saturday of Refik Anadol, an artist that he just announced that he's representing. So they'll be dropping three NFTs like from the fair oh, wow. as well. There's an NFT platform also being launched with June Art Fair, which is a fair that started last year that's sort of across from Basel and the Messeplatz. And I know that you guys both had a chance to attend the fair itself, not the platform, but what did you think of June this year? It looked really cool to me. I didn't quite understand like the whole significance of it which I guess is part and parcel of NFTs that they, some of them, you know, come with an actual artwork, some it's purely digital. So I walked in and there was a giant pile of teddy bears and they all had TK stamped on their foot. And there was some explanation about Ethereum or a new network that they're launching. So I guess I can look a little further into that, but that was what greeted you at the fair. The fair itself was cool. It was very well sized. You know, you could walk through it pretty quickly. The thing that surprised me was the number of New York galleries that were there because they're just names that I know to be like younger galleries. Whereas maybe it's not so surprising that like Gagosian and Pace and James Cohan make it to Basel. Smaller names like Foxy Productions, Martos Gallery. I saw another one that had a great exhibition from Tbilisi, Georgia. It had some interesting paintings. Well curated, easy to get through. I thought it looked cool. It was, it was a new name to me. I hadn't known about it before. Naomi, maybe you have some thoughts you want to share on it. No, I mean, I think that, you know, you covered it. It was a small and it was, I think, in a really convenient location right across from Unlimited. And I think that they probably benefited from like the curious footfall. I have the sense that with some exceptions, of course, that Lista and June like close out sales a little bit later in the week. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit of a different kind of like sales flow. But um, on that note, Lista was also at Mesaplatz for the first time ever. Lista being this fair for like young and emerging positions. They often call it like mini Basel because a lot of galleries like start there and then they graduate after a couple of years and go to statements. So, you know, Amalin, as Naomi had described, being one of those galleries. But you guys were at Lista today. I had a hard time finding it. It was like, <laughs> it was at the Platz, but the Platz is like absolutely huge. Yeah. I did have to ask two security guards. I mean, it is in a hall building, but you have to walk a little bit down the Mesaplatz and get to like the next block. It's now in its 25th year, and I spoke with the director, Joanna Cam. No, it's, um, it's really the first time in the history of Lister that it's a different location, and uh -huh. this is due to the best pandemic. Uh -huh. You know that in October, it was already pretty clear then, um, that 2021 will still be affected by the pandemic. Yeah. And, and um, I called Mark Spiegel and was asking him if he would make an exception in these exceptional times and um, would allow us to go in one of the fair halls. And he was immediately super supportive and collaborative uh -huh. and was saying yes, of course. And 
had to discuss it with the committee, but they all agreed, and uh -huh. so that's the reason oh, why we are now here. Yeah, you know? and it's a great space. I mean, um, the architecture, the whole circular layout, was it always sort of that format, or is this completely new? This is completely new because um, Lista was in a former brewery the last 24 years. So okay. we had five floors with many different rooms and uh -huh. corridors. So there was an existing architecture, uh -huh. and we maybe yeah we have put walls to cover other things and these all. But it was not like that. You really had to build a complete fair architecture. Right. And um, of course, this was a huge challenge then now to move into a fair hall uh -huh. because this um, building, this listed building, was. Um, really so significant also for the whole identity of Leicester. There uh -huh. were many terraces with bars and the artists and the galleries were hanging out together there. So mm -hmm. it was really a spirit of community. When we knew we were now here in this hall, I decided to ask office, cast and guest David from Van Severen. So this is a Belgian architecture office. Okay. A really great one, mm -hmm. uh, who has a close connection to art. And I, I asked them um, to transfer this spirit of community into an architecture which can work in the hall. Uh -huh. And so, uh, and I also asked them to build the whole architecture with our existing walls. Okay. And so they came up um, with this idea of the circle, which is a, yeah, a form which it's a unifies yeah. all these galleries. Mm -hmm. And did you get the sense that the galleries that were there liked the setup? Yeah, a lot of them um, told me that they were happy to be there. Some of them were first-timers. Some of them were first-timers who were part of the postponed fair, who then just kept the artists they were planning to show. They all seemed to like it. And, you know, I think we're kind of saying sales can be a little bit slower. Some of them did really well. It's interesting to hear that people were happy because I had a bit of a sense of mixed reviews. Like I had been to the brewery that held it before and, you know, it was very unusual for an art fair because you get this crazy map and there was like multiple stories and like trepid looking stairwells <laughs> that you'd have to kind of go around. And it really had this sense of discovery kind of like built into its very architecture. And I think like with this kind of oval or circular format that it had this year where everything was so egalitarian, on the one hand, every dealer had the same kind of space, which was not the case at the brewery like you would get vastly different cuts of the pie but on the other hand like a bit of the like patina of like what made Lista feel quite cool and exciting and they had a great patio was kind of not there so I will be curious to see what they decide to do and I'm sure they haven't made a decision I think that Lista is very sensitive about talking to all their galleries and they'll like make a very considered call on that but also this kind of like Foucault like circle is great as long as everyone's doing well but you know I had talked to a few dealers who were saying like it's a little bit weird because we're sitting on one side of the circle and we're looking and like Edward Montassou from Paris has like completely sold out his booth and everybody can like watch their invoices being made, you know, and they're kind of sitting there like waiting to close their first sale or something. So very, very open, very transparent, maybe a little too open. So I think people are on the outside of the ring. were like much more pleased to mm -hmm. not have to like bear witness to like everybody else's contact lists. One of the galleries that you were talking to had done quite well um, on the outside of the ring. A gallery from Warsaw called Pictogram. They had this amazing work by Nils Alex Tabling. It was um, a very intricate installation. The gallery actually told me that Lista helped support them. Maybe it's friends of Lista, but they got support from the fair because it was obviously a very intricate, big undertaking. Yeah, there was a lot of really nice work at Lista. It was great to take a tour around there. And you know, you were saying that the pace of sales is a bit slower. I was there today, I think, and what we're on, is it day three? But um, yeah, this this um, Italian collector, Francesco Torizano, and I remember I was speaking to him on Tuesday at Basel and he was saying, oh, you know, I've just picked up quite
quite a few works in Armory. I'm going to just be looking, not shopping. But then I saw him at Lister today and he bought a work from the Vienna Gallery, Vin Vin. And he was, you know, really excited. And I think he just kind of got caught up. Which is cool. I mean, that's what art fairs are about, right? It's supposed to be sort of event-driven motivation. And discoveries and, you know, that you have to do it now. I love it. Yeah, definitely. And did you have any interesting experiences in the evening? Because I had the sense that while the fair was very masked up and quite safe and there was lots of regulations, sort of the rest of Basel is really a lot less restricted when it comes to Krona and, and, you know, dealers and collectors and art advisors were going around to tons of dinner parties and stuff. At Foundation Byler last night, we were specifically told at the door that mask wearing inside was not mandatory. That's the first time that was actually explicitly said to me. Like people, I think, have been flouting the mask rule, but that was a very specific directive. And people were still wearing masks inside. Some people still were. Yeah, they were. But I mean, it's hard to sip champagne, you know, with a mask on or like eat, you know, what was it? The meat pralines that they were handing out. Yeah, we were served uh, meat pralines, which are meatballs on toothpicks. (laughs) Meatballs for fancy people. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. It it didn't really make sense to keep masks on. But I hope, I wish for everyone's sake that there isn't like some sort of 10 day from now uh, super spreader situation. Yeah, we actually had that question with Armory too, you know, even even as I, what I said about the the confidence, the jubilation about the return, we were sort of saying like, what, that was a couple of weeks ago. So it remains to be seen, you know, for that weekend and, and this week too. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they, you know, they're doing their best, you know, with the whole COVID certification thing. And, you know, the testing at the fair, I, I went to go and get a test today because I have to get one to go back to the UK. And, you know, it's very efficient. I mean, you just walk in and someone shoves a little swab up your nose and then you get your results in 20 minutes. I mean, I think we're getting kind of skilled at this by now. And of course, business needs to go on. So this was sort of a good testing ground and it seemed like it went quite well and was relatively safe, all things considered. I wonder what you think of what it means though for the future affairs. I mean, Basel is such a bellwether event for the art market. And I think people were really curious to see how it went and it went quite well, all things considered. I think so. And I think that it is really persuading collectors who are there. They're being a bit more confident about wanting to go to actually freeze and to Paris. We're on for like a very busy, the next three or four weeks of art fairs and international travel again. And I think that people are kind of encouraged by the turnout. I think maybe some of the collectors who aren't here might be feeling a little bit of FOMO and and decide to join in at Freeze. And then, yeah, for the dealers, I think that there's so much hanging on this event and its success and I think encouraging signs, I think, for the season ahead. Yeah. One thing that I think really stands out, and I do believe that dealers are telling the truth when they tell us this, is that it's very much right now a question of quality over quantity because there is a slower pace and a lower audience, even among Europeans so far, a lot of them have agreed on that that it allows for more looking, more conversation. I mean, I even felt that after we got past our own busyness on VIP day, when you walk into the fair, it's a little quieter. It's a little bit more low-key energy, but there's great stuff there. And you feel a little more relaxed with looking where you don't have to like race through and see everything at once. It does invite close examination and a little bit more deeper conversation. My takeaway too was that like the fair is becoming a bit more regional, especially of course, as we discussed in terms of the profile of collectors, but someone was saying to me that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's a reason, you know, Art Basel has an excellent fair in Miami. It has an excellent fair in Asia. I think the same goes for like Freeze's franchise and maybe not every collector needs to go to every single fair. There's a reason why Aspen was as successful as it is because you have a captive audience of billionaires there and they all turned up. So I think that that's 
that's sort of a model for success. It's like getting the wealthy collectors to where it's easy for them to yeah, go. Yeah, following the money to where the money is. Palm Beach, the Hamptons. Yeah. I'm curious to see how it goes. I mean, I definitely think that Basel likely won't keep the Art Basel Basel in September because it's just such a crush of, of events coming in the fall. And I actually spoke to someone who said that some of their U.S. collectors were skipping Basel because they were just going to go to London because it's like one hour less traveling. Yeah, I mean, I heard that too. I mean, and also just Armory just happened, you know, and it, people were kind of making a choice. People also miss, you know, the summer being like nicer weather. It's a bit of a nicer time. Floating down the Rhine is a highlight. <laughs> Where's my Spargel? People want their asparagus, you know? Yeah, we can't have Basel without Spargel. <laughs> yeah, well, great. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. I definitely, I'm leaving here much more optimistic than I walked in, so. Yep, I'm yeah. looking forward to a hectic few more fairs, freeze in London. I think, you know, if there is this energy, I mean, who knows? Yeah, you know, I feel like Armory and Basel, they've been tests, even if part of it is psychological as well as logistical. I think a lot of people yeah. have been put at ease and expectations in some cases, in many cases for the dealers here have been exceeded. I think expectations were met and also very pleasantly surprised that if the environment of the fair is, is so warm and that is really refreshing. We had really steady business um, the whole time, really. And even though there are fewer visitors, um, I think the visitors that are here are really serious. Yeah, well, I have different type of clients with different budgets, mm -hmm. but I'm more excited in really knowing if I get to discover something in our Basel. Mm -hmm. Thank you both so much for being on The Art Angle, and I look forward to reading your reports about this crush of fairs to come in future. Thanks for having us, Kate. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune into your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe even a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.